Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. Today we are excited to be joined by Shai Oster, a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who recently served as Asia Bureau Chief for The Information. Shai previously worked at The Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg with postings spanning China, Europe, and the US. He's now working as an independent strategy and communications consultant based out of Bangkok. In our conversation today with Shai, we dive into various topics related to China's economy, the tech industry, and investment flows. We explore different sectors in China, such as biotech, clean tech, and semiconductors. We also talk about the rise of electric vehicles in China, the success of Chinese auto exports, and how that's playing out on the ground in places like Bangkok. We conclude our conversation by looking at the platform economy in Southeast Asia, including a breakdown of the e-commerce, food delivery, and digital payment ecosystem in Thailand. Enjoy. There's a lot of companies that are cross-border. There's Crystal Pie, which is Boston, and is it Shenzhen or Shanghai? I forget. And what they're doing is they're applying AI to protein formation. And I think what you do is so you use AI and machine learning to come up with molecules and begin the early testing. And then you combine that with massive scale robotics to actually do the pipette. They're really unleashing uh, very powerful uh, drug discovery models. There's also a lot of early trial and other sort of outsourcing work that's being done in China still. And I think that's, that's an area where there's definitely still opportunity for growth. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half of the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market that no globally minded organization should ignore. But entering markets like China, Japan, or Southeast Asia is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. However, times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success growing their key markets in APAC. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies grow in the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful Asia market entry and growth strategies by interviewing the experts who've done it before and truly understand what it takes to be successful in the region. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Shai, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Todd. It's a pleasure. As we usually do, where in the world are you where we are recording you from today? So uh, I am in the lush uh, suburbs of northern Bangkok, where it's always steamy and hot, and right now we're in the rainy season. Um, and... Um, you know, living the dream, paying a fraction of the rent I used to pay in Hong Kong uh, for multiples of square footage and a pool and, you know, doing all right. Let's start with your background. Tell us about what got you interested in reporting on China and Asia originally. Usually it's a I fell over backwards into Asia type of story. And then tell us about, you know, your career up to this point. Sure, sure. Uh, fell over backwards is about right. I, my, uh, I'm Israeli American, uh, and um, but basically grew up in Long Island in a nice sheltered existence in the suburbs. Had my first reporting job uh, covering crime in a small New England town, which you would think is bucolic and sweet, but was a murderous, <laughs> uh, uh, violent little. Uh, you know, it's, it's an it's a neighborhood about 20 minutes north of Amherst and UMass. And but man, um, so I had more culture shock there than you could ever believe. Um, and after a couple of years of covering crime and um, 
violence and and mayhem, uh, stumbled across our gardening columnist who had been a foreign expert in China. Now, foreign experts, uh, the Chinese government going back to the 50s has a ministry of foreign experts. At the beginning, it was to bring in Russians who helped build hydropower dams, power plants, whatnot. And it had evolved into, uh, still exists now, a broader range of foreign experts brought in to assist. And one of the big things they do is they bring in foreigners to copy it at all their propaganda. Um, China Daily, for example, which is where I ended up. And so kind of randomly, I gave this person my resume and she's like, oh, I'll send it in because I was like, I got to get the heck out of Greenfield before like I get my head chopped off. And by the way, it's a beautiful place. And, you know, just my perspective was spending all the time with the cops and the crooks and the lawyers. Oh, um, sometimes that description fitting one person at the same time. Um, but uh, and just as I was preparing to go to grad school, I got a call from from China Daily asking if I'd go. And I said, look, I'll talk to you in a year. And as after a year at uh, a journalism school, I decided that I do want to be a foreign correspondent. And, uh, you know, what the hey, roll the dice. Let's try China because I have zero background in it. What could go wrong? I don't speak Chinese. I know nothing about the country. I have zero background in this. It'll be fine. Uh, and this was in 1998. And I got off the plane. Uh, at the old, old Beijing airport, which was, um, you know, felt really developing world, uh, was met by uh, the, the foreign minister, Wai Shiban, the, the person in charge of handling the foreigners from, from China Daily. And uh, was just like, wow, this place is crazy. And I just loved it. I just loved it. I had a blast. China Daily was, um, my job was copy editing. Um, and China Daily is, is a state-owned newspaper. Uh, as opposed to, say, the People's Daily, which is a party-owned newspaper. So there's a bit of a difference. Uh, but still, it's, you know, um, and it was just a fascinating introduction into China. Um, I love the people I worked with, the Chinese who were at China Daily. These are these are the best and the brightest who, had, you know, had um, developed the, the English skills at a high level. And they were ambitious journalists. And this was a time of, like, sort of there was it's just a different world than it is now but so people would try to push the boundaries and be you know do good stories and do good reporting and and um and for me it was just an an, an amazing entree into the whole world like working in a chinese Donway work unit was fascinating you know from the simple stuff like you know chinese people don't use chopsticks when they eat lunch at the work unit they use a spoon <laughs> And they just or shovel it in. Yeah. Right. Because it's fast. Well, they didn't have sporks. This was like in 98, right? This was pre-Starbucks. <laughs> so, and you learned like, oh, right. No one had their own passport. The passports were all given yeah. through the work unit, right? And then people, uh, in order to go, going abroad was still a, a, an amazing, uh, a, a rare thing. Uh, I was also there when housing reform began, which was this, uh, one of the least understood phenomenon in China, but basically uh, Premier Zhu Rongji, who I think has done more to, I think Deng Xiaoping and Zhu Rongji kind of stand as like the the builders of modern China. Zhu Rongji is the guy who did WTO session, which everyone knows how that transformed for better or worse, global manufacturing. But also what he did for China was the housing reformer. Effectively, he took the state-owned housing stock because everybody in the city worked at a work unit and the work unit owned the apartment. And what they did was at discount prices, fire sale prices, they effectively transferred this massive stock of st state wealth to individuals, and that sparked the housing boom. That moment created enormous middle-class wealth, 
And like, I remember everybody was like, Xiu, everybody was renovating, just this whole, whole uh, trickle down effect. Um, anyway, so it was a fascinating, fascinating time. And so after my, I'd done a one-year contract with China Daily, uh, and then was lucky enough to stumble into um, a credentialed uh, reporting gig for something called Bureau of National Affairs, which is a publisher of um, sort of specialist newsletters on like taxation issues. Um, and, uh, what else? Um, sort of very policy-oriented uh, stuff that, for example, that lawyers would read. And that was great. So I was writing for them uh, as well as freelancing for others such as Christian Science Monitor and the Wall Street Journal. Um, and eventually I ended up in a magazine. And I just I just loved it. I was learning Chinese. This was a time of like uh, uh, rapid growth, optimism, um, just a good time, just a good time. Just like really – Great time. Yeah, yeah. Everybody was like this. The era of Jiang Zemin, and you know, and and the and the, and the ascension to WTO. It was just a great time to be in China, and there's so much energy. Um, uh, and and I love that the Chinese have this. I said they still do, but they just had this like we'll try anything attitude. Like, mm-hmm. hey, mm-hmm. American football, sure, that looks amazing. Let's learn how yeah. to do that, right? Um, pole dancing. That seems like a fascinating exercise. Let's do pole dancing, yoga. Oh, I love it! Like there was just this incredible openness. Just a good time. It all it all came out. I, I, I my nostalgia is inspiring me to jump in. Um, yes. I got there in two thousand seven, so a, a little bit later, and and it was amazing. But for, still a for good time. Reasons. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the iPhone comes out, the smartphones there, a billion people are getting on the internet. It was just amazing. Um, but pre, China pre-Olympics, itself, yeah, China was a different beast back then certainly to what it was when i left in 2016 and and certainly different than what it is today for various reasons yeah. covid and other but you know back then it was i don't know there was no there was no anxiety there was no um uh everybody was having fun together you weren't you you were just a part of it and they were excited to have you and talk to you and learn from you and vice versa and there was no threat or or any any you know any reason to to be worried everything was open they they had all watched the dvds of friends and and uh they had seen how the other half lives and they were excited to try all the things like you just said and i don't know there was just such a I don't know, almost like an innocent air of just positivity and optimism and try anything and, and, sure, and being sure. risk averse. And yeah, I mean, I think the young people just felt like things were changing and they weren't always going to be, you know, how their grandparents and parents and had all lived and, and grown up and, and things were going to change. And it was a much more open and they could start to make more choices for themselves. And yeah, it was just wonderful. I'll give you an example. 2008, uh, the Olympics, I was at a massive party hosted by Soho China. Uh, you remember the, the the big Chinese real estate, and and uh, at the time Zhang Xin, who was the, the co-founder with her husband Pan Shi, she's almost like a friend, right? Because she was like down with the Western journalists. So this massive party at their their um, villa complex, coming by the wall, that sort of hotel villas in, in, uh, along the Great Wall, and it was every foreign correspondent, like all of us, you know, maybe a couple of English teachers. Jared Leto was there. Quincy Jones was there. I have a photo of my wife with Quincy Jones because he like they, they look a little similar, and in fact she's from the same part of the states as he is. So he was asking, "Are you one of mine?" Uh, you know, and it was just like none of that's possible now, right? That just that that kind of a party 
and, and I know part of it is the nostalgia for who we were back then. Let's let's not you know, but um, but it is you're, you're right, and also it's like that was an era of the economics bear out as well, right? That was an era of like you, you could double your income. You know, Chinese could double their income year to year, right? They were if you look if you look at people's resumes from that era, it was like jump and jump and jump and jump and jump. But yeah, so so um, just quickly, so after I I. I Asia Week. Then I did a couple of years in London covering uh, OPEC for Dow Jones. Then Wall Street Journal in 2010 in Beijing. That's when I was with this amazing group of journalists read by Rebecca Blumenstein, who's now at ABC or NBC. My gosh, I can't keep track of how her career is just zooming up. Uh, and um, we got a Pulitzer writing about the economic, the, the, the social and environmental consequences of China's boom. Uh, this was around the time of the Songha River, you know, the 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 um, was it pollution of the northern rivers and sorts of that's the beginning of the awareness of like the, the environmental degradation. And uh, did that for a couple of years. Moved down to Hong Kong with Bloomberg. Uh, did some stories that kicked up a couple of hornets' nests. So you can Google my name if you want more on that. Um, and then in two thousand and something. Uh, launched uh, the Informations Asia Bureau, uh, built it up to a team of four. Um, and um, that was a lot of fun. Um, but again, like the arc, right? Like when I joined, it was a VC boom, right? Valuations were soaring. The amount of money pouring in from the US was crazy. Uh, and now, I mean, I timed it, I guess, pretty well. Um, it's just that whole thing has collapsed. Now, I've always argued that it was kind of fundamentally weird that China tech was reliant on Western money and the whole idea that like all the biggest Chinese companies have to list in the US. Yeah, I get that it's like massive liquidity, but it, you know, think about it this way. What if Google could only list in Russia and you couldn't buy or you couldn't trade in rubles? That's effectively the way the Chinese system works right now is that all of its most important and powerful tech companies, all companies, frankly, even the banks are listed overseas which means that Chinese people, most Chinese people, don't have access to trading them. And that the people who are judging the value of your companies don't use your stuff, right? Some, some, the Ontario Teachers Pension Fund, which I talk about them, I use them as a proxy for, just because I, I like the name. But like, they're not using Taobao to buy stuff, right? They're not using Meituan to pick a restaurant. And yet they're the ones who are picking and choosing the winners based on like an Excel spreadsheet and like, uh, you know, the, the, the investor relations guy, but not based on like, I'm in the country, I'm using the app, I see around me, right? They have to like fly in, which remember three years, they couldn't fly in. They have to fly in and like, oh, my friends are using it, right? Like it's just a whole, you know, the Chinese say, I'm Maldun, right? And like in the Chinese framework of the, the Marxist dialectic, all contradictions must be resolved. And I think in some sense, what we're seeing now is the resolution of that conflict of that contradiction, mm -hmm. right? It just, yes. it just didn't fundamentally make sense for the world's second biggest economy to be reliant on a bunch of college endowments to pick its tech winners, right? It, it worked. It was great. Good for the endowments. They made a bunch of money good for the Chinese entrepreneurs who like got that money. But if you think about it, it's just kind of weird. So you got us caught up to the information. Tell us about what you're up to now. So I, I, I'm now doing my own thing as an independent uh, strategic communications consultant and a bit of business development consulting as well. Um, and my clients are primarily outbound Chinese uh, or, or, uh, or Chinese VC and, and some of the biggest uh, Chinese 
uh, founded startups and helping them. And it's interesting because there still is there still is the money coming in from the West, and so there's still a narrative to be crafted. Um, and there's also Chinese companies that are now outbound, and they're trying to navigate how to not only communicate um, to the world, but it's not just what you say, but what you it's not just about spin, but it's about what you do, right? If you're doing terrible things, no amount of spin is going to help it. So I'm also helping them figure out what they need to improve in terms of particularly ESG stuff. Uh, and it's been fascinating because some of the companies would have been slam dunks uh, five years ago, just, you know, consumer facing, just would have been no problem at all. But now in this environment, uh, it's bonkers. Uh, and the problem is that because of these companies still have these Western investors, they still need to go to the U.S. markets. And it's very tricky, um, not only because global markets right now are unpredictable and eh, right? this is kind of the, the IPO windows opening a bit in the U.S., but it's been not fantastic. Um, but the problem is that Hong Kong is dismal. So even if you're a Chinese company and you and you had the choice, it's easier to list in Hong Kong, right? Because regulatory, uh, uh, because of regulations, benchmarks, and yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's no there's no liquidity, and like trading volume is 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 just zilch. Um, I mean, a lot of the senior bankers that I know have left Hong Kong because there's just no business. IPO bankers got nothing to do. So you're, you're, if you're a Chinese company looking to do an IPO outside of China, uh, which is still the preferred option for a number of reasons, uh, you got to go to the U.S. because that's where, even in this downish market, that's where the liquidity is. That's where the big money is. Uh, and so it's been fun, kind of like fun. I, I use that very loosely. Fascinating trying to help them with their messaging and with the actual behavior and the things they do. And and uh you know dealing with sort of the high level c suite um and um uh it is just it's just challenging times but it's just really fascinating and i and i think you know there's there's so much you know, i think prejudice yes have there been bad actions yes um is there some cause to be concerned yes um but so much of what the Chinese companies are doing is is exactly the same that Western companies are doing, particularly when it comes to like ESG stuff. Um, because let's say, for example, in manufacturing, is is Apple like everybody's making their stuff in China? Everybody. Amazon, I, I would almost jokingly say Amazon's a Chinese company just that happens to have headquarters in Seattle, right? Like it's Without China, what is Amazon, right? Like they just, they would disappear, right? Um, but because they're a marketplace, they're not responsible for what's happening on their platform. Uh, but you, anyway, um, and, and because they're American, they don't face the same level of scrutiny and suspicion. Now, yes, is there like cause, as I said, like I, I'm not, I'm not naive. I mean, I, I you know, I've, I, 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 trust me, I, 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 I've been in the backseat of a Chinese police car, you know, not uh, uh, and, and had to sign, confa- you know what I mean? I know the system, I know what it is. And I understand that like the concerns, like for example, TikTok, uh, you know, yes, I see, I see where the concerns are, but also 
Facebook ain't exactly benign all the time, as we saw, you know. So, so anyway, it's but it's it's interesting to try to figure out. Um, work working with these companies has been fascinating. Uh, it's still a billion plus people. There's still a middle class. There's still room for the right American company to go in there, or a Western company, not necessarily just American. Excellent. Yes, and and that's a lot of what we want to hear, and kind of what we promote on here as well is that if you look at the surface of foreign direct investment or even just in the population of expats or what have you, you might not think things are great. That's your opportunity. That is your opportunity right there. While everybody else is 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 waiting for somebody else to make the first move, go ahead and make the first move. Um, I think uh, now is a great time to go and get in. Um, and I think they'll be more welcoming um, potentially than, than they have been in the past. So um, now you have been monitoring China's tech scene closely for a while. We talked a little bit about it. That's a little bit about my background. So there's some crossover there. Um, I want you to pick a technology or something that's exciting in the technology realm that's a really cool story right now. But then maybe I'm going to put some handcuffs on you in a little bit and maybe say, let's take EV and AI off the table as choices for you. That's not fair, dude. That's like, <laughs> chop the right hand off. Chop the left hand off. Can you write now? <laughs> Sorry, that, that's... that's uh, Maybe we delete that part. We delete that part. But yeah. yeah um, but you know okay. what I what's, mean, and that's fair. And after... that's fair. Yeah, well, that's fine. And you can speak oh, to that biotech, too. Biotech, biotech. No, no, biotech. Yeah. Uh, we can say. It. I mean, biotech for sure... Um, and there still is uh, IoT stuff is still happening. So biotech, so biotech is hard because you really those are it might get a bad rap too. Well, well, no, no, no. I mean they're actually doing okay. Uh, you know, yes, there's another yet another crackdown on on a sector. So um, all the the western all, all the all the pharma companies are getting hammered now because yeah, this is just like this is every time you think you found a safe space in China, somebody comes in and cuts your legs off. But within the startup space, there's a lot of really bright, smart Chinese PhDs, and a lot of them were trained in the U.S., of course, or Canada, actually. By the way, Canada is a huge hub for AI. And there's a lot of companies that are sort of cross-border, like uh, there's Crystal Pie, which is Boston, and is it Shenzhen or Shanghai? I forget. Uh, that, and, and what they're doing is they're applying AI to... Uh, uh, protein formation, and I think that, and, and then what you do is so you use AI and machine learning to come up with molecules and begin the early testing, and then you combine that with massive scale robotics to actually do the pipettes. Uh, and so they're really unleashing uh, very powerful uh, drug discovery models. There's also a lot of um, sort of early trial and other sort of outsourcing work. Uh, that's being done in China still, and I think that's um, uh, that's an area where um, there's there's definitely still opportunity for growth, um, and and um, it doesn't seem to have been uh, subject to political headwinds either in the U.S. or China. Uh, these companies, drug discovery, um, drug development seem to be okay. Uh, and, and, you know, venture capitalists like Chi Ming are still doing all right. And what's interesting is like people are now thinking 
that the exit doesn't necessarily have to be offshore. It might be a domestic uh, IPO because, you know, I don't know if you're aware, but now the Chinese stock markets, I believe in liquidity, it's the second to the US. It's massive. Uh, it's done really well. Uh, and so it's complicated to get your money up, but you can. You have to pay, you know, all sorts of fees and there's lockup periods and it's not easy, but you can do it. And so, uh, and I think biotech is kind of going to be greenlit by, by both sides uh, and clean tech. That's another area where uh, the regulatory headwinds on both sides are in your favor. Sorry, tailwinds, regulatory tailwinds. Uh, both the U.S. and China, uh, this is one of the few places where we're still sort of talking positively to each other. Um, and, uh, you know, China Solar, for example, I mean, yes, it was... It was an ugly story that involved a lot of U.S. bankruptcies and 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 dumping and you know you can it, it, and, and government subsidies and whatnot. Uh, but now I believe like the value chain of solar is, all, is just dominated by the Chinese manufacturers and and they are innovating uh, and for better or worse they made solar and wind affordable and competitive. Uh, so you can argue about how they got there and and whether or not it was efficient or fair. Uh, I think that's definitely debatable but th- there's some of those companies are going to be are, are, are really doing well uh and even if like and, and can we squeeze in batteries not necessarily ev but like you know cattle is killing it cattle is a great company they're super smart they are building plants offshore right they are taking a page from the japanese playbook right where you look I understand you don't want me dumping my stuff. What if I bring my manufacturing and my jobs and, by the way, my technology to you? Um, and, uh, you know, they make a good product, right? Um, yes, they have government subsidies, but guess what an industrial park in the U.S. is? There's also tax breaks, right? I mean, every city in the U.S. gives tax breaks and makes incentives granted. It's a question of scale and how much. And, you know, I, 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 yeah, I'm fully aware. But... Nonetheless, uh, so I would definitely, I'm excited about um, the battery space in particular. Um, I think there's, there's good work. And then uh, I'm surprised, like everybody else, that the, I mean, we, everyone kind of joked about this, that the U.S. sanctions on, on uh, semiconductors would spur a boom in innovation in China. Uh, and, and that was actually, the VCs saw that right away. Right as soon as the as soon as the sanctions went up, the VCs were like, "We got to find the next, you know, AMD or 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 Nvidia in China," and um, because the the, the the U.S. created a new market. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, and and that's that's what's happened now. You know, this new the new Huawei phone that came out. You know, I'm, I'm sure you've seen the reports. Like, is it? Is are they making the chips at scale or not? Is it commercially viable? Are they making you know? Sure, I don't know, um, but they're doing it now, uh, and eventually they'll make it profitable. They'll make it like the more you do it, the better you get at it, right? So, uh, I think the, the the chip sector, and again, like it kind of makes sense for China to have done this anyway, right? It's it's kind of bonkers that, you know, they were completely reliant on 
paying patents to Qualcomm and Intel, and it, right? It's kind of like when you think about it, it's like, we, yes, globalization, but like it's also kind of like complete reliance, right? It's not like, oh, I have like five suppliers, two are from the States. It's like all my supply completely hinges on this one, right? And, the, and vice versa for us. So sometimes the coupling may be rational, right? A certain amount of like domestic manufacturing ain't bad for an economy. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not an anti-globalist by any, by any means, but I, I think sometimes some of what we're seeing, I think is just maybe a return to a more healthy balance, perhaps. Yeah. Like, like WTO. Yeah. Anyway, so I'm, I'm ranting. I'm ranting. No, it's okay. I mean, yeah. the pendulum has to swing um, back. I mean, how many decades of low cost lease regulation did manufacturing chase around the world, um, mostly ending up in China? And you knew that it just couldn't continue that way um, forever. And, you know, and then it's funny because the public is the last to to catch up and then they don't like the rising cost of living and they don't like the rising cost of their technology and toys and groceries. And so, well, you can't have it both ways. Um, but here we are. Um, I actually want to give you, I want to throw you a bone, give you a, give the, the audience a little disclaimer. We have to be very thankful that Shai is actually doing the show right now because he is actually really under the weather. You could probably hear it in his voice. Um, <laughs> he has a couple of germ factories at home, like I do, who have now started going back to school and have been bringing all kinds of fun things uh, back home for us withering adults to deal with. And so uh, you've probably heard that from him, but you know, nevertheless, we've got to give him a pass because we're just happy to have him on the show. So, you know, kudos to you for, for still coming on and bringing so much energy when you're not feeling so well. Um, now I did take EV and AI off the table because I want to use them later. Um, and so I did, I wanted to keep it going on that. So yeah, if, uh, just, just, uh, give us a quick two minute, one minute, kind of your thoughts on the outlook for the EV sector in China. EVs and AI. Let me talk about EVs first, because one of the things that's really fascinating about being in Bangkok is unlike Hong Kong, which weirdly doesn't get a lot of Chinese stuff, right? You can't even, it's really complicated to even order from Taobao in Hong Kong because it's like crossing borders. But here I get Lazada, which is the Alibaba subsidiary. And it's amazing. It's actually better than Taobao. They have a really good, um, their English language search is fantastic. Anyway, since I've arrived here, what I've seen is the Chinese EVs everywhere. They're, they're just and, – and so Thailand's interesting because it's always been a, a, a car manufacturing hub. The Ford has a big plant here. They make uh, two uh, – an SUV and a pickup truck. Um, Isuzu, I believe, is here. I think Toyota manufactures. I'm not sure who else. But there's a bunch. There's always had like an auto industry, which is not, not the first thing you think about when you think of Thailand. And the Chinese are now building here as well. Uh, they're building EV plants. They're building battery factories here. And you see them on the street. I see MG – Right, the British band that got bought by which Chinese company? I forget. Um, you see a lot of uh, uh, Aura Cat, which is looks like the unholy love child of a Volkswagen '70s era bug and a Tesla. Uh, that's made by I believe it's Great Wall uh, uh, Great Wall Auto GW as a Great Wall Auto Great Wall. Yep. Motors, Great Wall Motors. GWM. I owned one. I, I, I had my, was my car in China. That's Great Wall Motors. You had an Aura? Ah, uh, no, no. This was this was like, circa 2014. Oh yeah, no. These so these things are popular, and they come in like these crazy shades of like chartreuse and like pink. I, I just it, it's not what I would call my. It's not the car that I would pick, 
but it's doing really well here. Uh, another, of course, BYD is everywhere. And frankly, they're beautiful looking cars. Um, and they have that really nice hum when they drive slowly, like this little singing thing they do. Um, you know, in our neighborhood, I, I live in this sort of like exclusive villa gated compound, uh, which has like uh, all the, uh, most of the expats are like NGO types or like 20 year old used cars that they've been handing down from generation to generation and then fairly wealthy Thai. And the Thai are the ones buying the Chinese cars. And so you see at the cool, at the school parking lot, it's like Porsche, BYD, uh, MGs, uh, who else? Um, uh, just more and more of the Chinese car, car companies. They're just, there's everywhere. And the EVs have just boomed. Uh, and, and they're, they're, Partly on price, but also the products aren't bad. They make a decent product. Um, and so it's interesting to see like um, Xpeng doing well. I mean, you know, there's price wars in China, but Xpeng's expanding into Europe, not coming to Thailand yet, which surprised me. Um, I haven't seen Neo yet. I'm trying to think who else I've seen. Um, but yeah, so I, to me, the EV. You know, overall, China's auto exports are uh, either on track or will, tr- or will surpass Japan. Um, and it's just, it's just, you know, an amazing success story driven primarily by the private companies. Um, and it's interesting that, like, one of the, criti- you know, the, 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 Within China, the big car makers, the foreigners, all had to do JVs in the beginning, right? And so you had like GM and all this. And I've heard people say that like the JVs were so profitable that the Chinese partners didn't have to innovate much. They weren't the state-owned owners. The state-owned partners were just like minting money. And so they didn't feel that fire. Whereas the private guys, the BYDs, the Cherries, et cetera, um, just to compete domestically, had to run twice as fast. And yes, of course, they, you know, if your your local governments would pour money at you and you had subsidies and help and discounts and free land, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but still, the, and they're not getting those benefits when they go overseas, right? When they build manufacturing plants overseas, it's fairly level playing field. And it's going to be interesting to see, particularly in Southeast Asia, where there are the Japanese, the Americans, to see how the Chinese compete uh, in, a, in a relatively level playing field. Um, and it seems that so far, they're doing pretty well. I think the prices are, you know, they're, they're, they're not, and what's interesting is these cars aren't, aren't being marketed as cheap. They're not being marketed as um, the Yugo of, of, of today, right? Uh, it's, it's being marketed as um, mid to upscale, uh, which is interesting, right? And and so we're talking like thirty thirty five thousand US, which isn't yeah they ain't cheap. exactly cheap. Yeah, but it's a, especially like when you half price pilot. of a Tesla. Yeah, and, and you see some Teslas around here. Um, they, I mean, like Hong Kong was like Tesla ground zero. It was ridiculous, but that was because the subsidies uh, the, 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 the effectively made Teslas cheap relative to conventional cars, right? Because especially new car, new cars, you have to pay enormous taxes in Hong Kong. So effectively would double the price of anything. And Tesla had, it had the two year buyback program. Right? So you basically, you could sell it back at like 75%. I forget what the exact percentage was. Plus the, 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 the local tax discounts also helped it. Um, and I, 
I'm curious to see, you know, we left Hong Kong about a year ago, whether the Chinese are making inroads there. Um, but here, certainly, uh, there are also tax benefits to owning EVs. I don't know the exact percentages. Um, but, um, yeah, it's, it's just fascinating to see how it's booming. And what's interesting is about the, the auto industry is that, you know, it, it can become a linchpin for um, a whole nexus of greater growth, right? Just like Detroit, you know, powered so much of America's prosperity for so long and it's, it's decline, it's rise and, you know, it's rise and fall and rise again, if you, if you, if you, if you will. Uh, I think what's happening with the auto industry is, is a real bright spot. Um, yes, they are fighting. There's a lot of like price war competition domestically, but I think, and that's also really spurring them to go overseas. But if they pull this off and they seem to be doing it, it could really generate all sorts of other opportunities. And what's interesting is that the auto supply um, industry has already been dominated quite a bit by some of the biggest Chinese companies, right? They bought a lot of the big uh, German auto parts makers a while ago. Um, and that's, that, that was a story of maybe five, 10 years ago where a lot of the auto parts makers were, were being made, uh, being owned by Chinese. And so that supply chain, that overseas, that, that supply chain is already Chinese, at least to some extent. Um, and now, and, and I, and I know that, you know, EVs create a different kind of supply chain because you don't need a drivetrain, you don't, you know, different kind of motors and whatnot. But so I think that's an investment opportunity. It's also interesting to see what will, what kind of requirements, like as they, as they build plants overseas, are they going to be spurring uh, little mini ecosystems in the countries where they expand to? Um, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's just an incredible phenomenon to see. Uh, and, and, you know, a car is a big. I, I'm wondering if it'll have the same kind of trajectory as as the cell phones, um, but I, I think that it's it's a much higher, it's a much bigger commitment to buy a car than a smartphone. Um, and and what's interesting as well is because they're EVs, they also require infrastructure commitments, right? You have to have plug-in stations and whatnot, so that makes them, I think, much stickier. Kind of like once you bought this kind of EV, are you going to switch to another? I mean, we have one neighbor here who has uh, a BMW EV, uh, a Tesla, and a BYD. <laughs> I think they got rid of the BMW. I don't see it parked there anymore. <laughs> um, which was, that's the one that was discontinued anyway. Uh, but anyway, so I think that's that's that to me is is a well. I mean, let me BYD ask you a question about phenomenal. that. Go ahead. I'm, and, and BYD is too. I mean, uh, our old famous investor friend who is. Uh, deeply into that. Um, actually, I, I, I've kind of got my eye on it. I, I, I would actually be very, very interested to get a BYD dealership deal um, out where I am and be one of the first to be able to jump on top of that. I think that would be really cool. But a little bit off script here, I want to ask you, do you hear any whispers? Because I hear it all the time over here now, and it's starting to filter into the news where people are actually they're very concerned about the power grid and the draw on power and the expense of electricity and how as more and more people move to electric vehicles, what that's going to do to the price of electricity and what that price of electricity is going to do to all the other things that are powered by electricity, especially in throughout the house and um, draw on, you know, certain grids, wealthier grids where 
they are, I know, in the construction industry that they're all putting all, you know, EV compatible uh, charging stations pre kind of wired into the garages of, of all new homes that are being built. Um, I, I hear some some kind of whisperings going on of concerns just around power production and, and, and power consumption due to the rise of electric vehicles. Do you hear any of that in that area of the world? Uh, no, uh, it could be because as a, as a percentage, um, it's still, quite low still, still penetration. Yeah. I mean, cause most people are still driving, uh, you know, combustible. Yeah. Fueled engines. The bigger concern here is aircon, uh, around global warming. And you see that as well in the U S what's really screwing everybody's power grids is not people plugging in Tesla's, but people ramping up ACs as we have these crazy heat waves. That's the only thing I've seen. That people talk about uh, because again, it's just I think the penetration of EVs is still relatively small. Um, there are solutions, right? There's about there's about um, power storage, right? People are talking more about dispersal of, of um, batteries. So I haven't, and, and and it's true that like developing countries don't have the most robust um, infrastructure. Then again, neither does the U.S. As we've unfortunately oh, seen yeah. with these. That's been in California too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just the billions or trillions overhaul that they're talking about it needing in the U S like it's yeah. starting to get a little scary. Yeah. So, but I haven't seen, I think more No, I don't know the numbers, but um, I just do know that we have to worry about blackouts, not when people are commuting, um, but when, when the heat waves spike. Does there any thought, I mean, again, uh, wasn't the narrative a decade ago trying to get everybody out of cars, off streets, uh, high occupancy vehicle lanes, um, you know, tolls for fast lanes um, to try to get more people carpooling into public transportation? Like these were the big moves and it was all around kind of reducing uh, vehicles on the road. Um, and I've been... In Asia, uh, I know what traffic congestion truly looks like. Um, I don't think most people that don't live over there can truly understand what traffic congestion can really be like. Um, you should probably be thankful for your, you know, 45 commute that becomes a 55 commute. Um, that's nothing. Uh, <laughs> so um, I just from an infrastructure perspective, it gets it starts booming more and more people getting on the roads. Um is this is the landscape from a, a, a kind of a structural point of view, uh, infrastructure point of view, ready to take this on? We have ungodly sized parking lots here and parking garages and 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 well, a garage in your home. Um, I just kind of think that that if that grows too fast, uh, it would be almost impossible to catch up in, in the other infrastructure needs ways. I, I, I'm glad I don't live in Jakarta. Um, mm. uh, I can no longer go vacation in Bali because the traffic there is mm. just insane. I got married in Bali. Yeah, uh, your guests would have been stuck in traffic. Mm. Uh, it's just it it's just yeah. overwhelmed, right? The, the roads are still tiny, but now everybody has a car, and a lot of it's domestic tourism. Uh, that's really it's it's not that there are that many more foreigners renting cars; it's the domestic tourism. Uh, and you know, here in, in Bangkok, they're, they're doing okay, right? They have the SkyTrain, which is, was a huge help. Uh, I live 16 kilometers from the U S embassy, which is like uh, a proxy for downtown. Um, 
it's taken um can take me 25 minutes on a sunday or two hours on a on a weekday um and that ain't bad compared to malaysia jakarta all these other cities um i think on the other hand uh they are uh, just outside my i can almost see it from here they're building a new uh, extension to the monorail so all these cities are building a lot of cities are building um uh, uh, public transportation, um, mostly light rail, um, not because subways are very expensive, not necessarily even yeah. turn. Um, so light rail, um, and maybe I'm just naively doing an addition that is actually not there. It's just a swapping out. Um, it's more of a trade. Uh, uh, you know, so Thailand is weird because there has been a, a fairly sizable like they, they have a car culture here right they, they got they got like gearheads and like there's there's this rest up near near our house where every friday night like everybody's there with their like souped up vehicles right it's like a total thing right they they're really into their cars and you don't have to be rich to own a car because there's a very vibrant used car market and 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 i think i i don't know the the numbers are but just from a sense of it it seems that like car ownership is quite high so just looking around the houses where i live everybody has a car certainly everybody has a motor uh, as a scooter right that that's that's the thing right everybody's got scooters what's interesting is that the scooters i'm beginning to see some electric scooters now by scooter i mean like vespa you know i don't know not not the not the not silicon the pedal one, the push ones yeah 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 and so or the right 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 electric right 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 yeah no these are the ride-on Typically yeah. need insurance, license plate type things. Yeah, so some of those are going electric. Uh, I, I think places like Jakarta are, are I mean, it, it's gotten so bad, they're relocating the capital, right? They just said, do over <laughs> and just, we'll, we'll set up a new capital. Kuala Lumpur is becoming, you know, unmanageable. Um, Saigon also, you know, people complain about it. But, um, and, and, in, and in Bangkok, like, it was really horrific, the, the SkyTrain has changed a lot. Public, it's weird though. So they've got this really nice um, light rail, the SkyTrain. Buses are horrific looking, uh, unair conditioned, kind of like look like 1970s era. I, I don't know enough to to understand why the buses are are so dismal looking whereas the rail is looks pretty nice and of course covid's kind of screwed up everybody's plans right like everybody's infrastructure projects got delayed and and caught up and you know it's finally looking like the projects around here in in and they they have they have a very ambitious plan for bangkok it seems to be finally getting some steam uh you know they had some uh political uncertainty for a while uh, and now that they've already finally got the government in place, it seems that a lot of these projects will will, will get back on track. Um, but you're right. Like, it, how sustainable is everybody owning a car? Uh, not very. Well, because the rate of how that can grow is going to absolutely, like you said, on infrastructure development. I mean, it just it's just yeah. it could potentially just far outpace as we saw with 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 you know in China where where it was just a, a mobile smartphone versus the growth of the computer. I mean. They just left that behind, um, yeah, and and nobody yeah. bothered. It didn't need to. Um, I want to skip over maybe AI because we have covered that a little bit um, 
on the show before. But I want to get, because of where you're based, I do want to get a little bit more into talking about the e-commerce platforms in Southeast Asia. Um, and I'd like to know your assessment of that current competitive landscape and, and who maybe some of the hot upstarts are and, and how Alibaba is, is kind of handling all of, this, uh, all of these challengers. Here in Thailand, you have, it's, it's dominated by Lazada and Shopee. Uh, Shopee being part of uh, Singapore-based C, uh, which is also a gaming company, and Lazada, the, the unit of Alibaba. The local upstarts are not... Th- there's a lot of uh, competition on food delivery, but e-commerce is quite locked up by Lazada and, and Shopee. Uh, and and uh, anecdotally, I know Shopee's actually... Shopee had a rough time was it last year, and they seem to be turning the corner... Um, I just don't see their scooters much in our neighborhood. Now that could just be, again, like anecdotal, right? Um, I, I do know that Shopee has uh, tie-ins with big brands here. Um, you can even like use them to pay tolls and whatnot. Um, but Lazada is by far the, the best. But to give you an example of how fragmented, um, the things that are really fragmented here are payments and food delivery. And I'm just going to open up, you know, Thailand's a whack of, one of the weirdest things about Thailand is that they use this thing, this app called Line, which I don't know if you're familiar. Line is um, founded in Korea, but now owned by Japanese, as I recall. Uh, and they're kind of like, they're only popular, it's only popular in Japan, I think Korea to yeah. some extent. And yeah, here. Line was Japan, Kakao was um, was Korea. Korea. Sorry. And then WeChat was, was China. Right. And so I have... I have like 15 different platforms, including stone carvings and smoke signals. But let me, uh, I'm just pulling up um, somebody that I order from, uh, not Vapor, trying to find somebody. Uh, oh, you're no, getting oh, on the payment solution. This, this, by the way, is, is all, all, I'm not buying from them, but this is the cannabis delivery app. <laughs> oh, wow. And it's just a full app. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, an, it's an official account within line. Oh, wow. We, that's, so there's definitely going to be a in. part two here later. I skipped over AI. There's other things we got to get. Into here we go. Too. There's, there's your, there's your choice of what bud you want. Wow. Wow. Look at that. Well, good on them. And then, and then let's Keep see everybody how, how do we, chill. yeah, let's see. How do I order? Um, oh, it goes Just to, go to something your called fun crowd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I haven't, I, <laughs> I, I, it's just just research. I'm just doing it for research. Oh, here we go. Tony's Kitchen. That's Tony's amazing. Kitchen is this like little corner, you know, uh, a fried noodle joint. Um, but the but the owner is pretty savvy. He's he's managed to turn his little corner shop into um, he does um, catering to uh, the local hospital and whatnot. So he's grown his business pretty well. But if you want to order from him, here are the six options you have for getting your food delivered from like the the delivery company you mean so this is a local so tony's is just a local restaurant right it's only open uh like 6 a.m to 5 yeah closed on saturdays and if i want to order from them i got a choice from line man grab food which you might know as grab right yeah yeah um yeah. robin hood which i don't even know true which is the local um uh it's the um telecoms company it's the smart it's the yeah uh, Air Asia, which is the airline, which is now also doing a super app to selling food, and then Shopee Food. So if you have if you have a choice of six companies, my guess is ain't nobody making a buck. 
right? No one's going to be charging a ton. And what's interesting as well is locally, most people are old school. They say, actually, I prefer if you just called me directly because I don't want to pay a cut to the delivery companies. Yeah. So there's a lot of just old school calling somebody up. And then what's interesting though is what's still uh, what's still um, facilitate what's 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 great is that the digital the local banks here though have been very good about adapting um, uh, digital payments. Uh, apparently, um, K Bank, um, which I cannot pronounce her full name, uh, was one of the earliest to adopt sort of digitization uh, back in the day. What is their full name? They're they're my bank, um, and. Uh, so here, uh, let's say I want to, you know, I, I, just, I, I just scan, like somebody can show me the receipt. I just scan the receipt and it instantly goes to their account. Um, and I can you know, QR to pay, QR to receive. I can just show somebody my QR code and they can pay me right away. It goes right into my account. No yep. fees. Yeah. Um, it's very WeChat-esque. Yes, but apparently these guys have been doing it before. I remember getting up, uh, there was a pay or receive, and it was just that you could toggle back between the two. And one was a QR code that somebody could scan to send you money. And then there was um, a barcode that you could pull up that the storefront cashier could just scan. They'd scan all your items and then go right right in time, right to your phone, scan that barcode. And then it would ask you if you want to pay and, and it would do like a facial recognition or something like that. And then you just press yes. And then the, the money be gone. They saw it on their till that you're paid and they're like, yep, you're gone out of here. Yeah. Yeah. So, but this is the banks doing it directly, but it also, if you go, so if you go to a Seven Eleven, it's like, which of 17 payment apps do you want to use? And what was there not loyalty programs that are, is it always going to make you choose the exact same one or like with all these delivery options, aren't you always going to go with the one that you're building loyalty and points and potentially, you know, rewards with. Yeah. But so they're always going to be competing. Like every time company A does a promotion, company B only has to do a little bit more to undercut it. Yeah. But if you have 10,000 points with one, you're going to want to add to that total to unlock bigger. But how are you going to get to that point? How are you going to get there? Right. Yes. I'm sure you can get to that. Hmm. But like, if it's constantly like this market has always been fragmented. Yeah. Oh yeah. And that's a great example of how it is. I mean, I think the true, true mobile has, as as one of the big cellular phone providers, they you accrue you accrue points on their platform just from using the phone and from topping up data or whatnot. So maybe they can kind of steer you to using those points. Like if you have like a platform cross platform uh, synergies, uh, Shopee can have a cross platform synergy. Grab Food, I guess, also to a certain extent. Um, oh, I forgot Food Pandas here too. So there's actually seven. Is there like anti-monopoly laws that are just so super strict? Like how have they not, how have not two or three of them gotten together? Are they just not playing nice? Uh, I don't know. Oh, there has been some mergers. Uh, Wong Nai, uh, which was another local company, a food delivery app, got acquired by Line. Uh, so there's been a bit of consolidation. Um, I'm actually surprised Lazada isn't playing in this field as well because they already have the the, the whole network of uh, you know the delivery infrastructure. Uh, I don't know, to be honest. I, I Maybe they're too not... busy spinning up uh, Lazada Basics um, in their own line of... And some of these are new, right? Like the Air Asia food is is a new entry into the market. Um, mm. uh, it could be also that because, you know, delivery, I think the cost of the delivery is relatively cheap, right? Hiring a guy or a woman to get on a moped and 
deliver food might be that cost of entry might be low. I'm just don't, I just don't understand the unit economics of it. To, no, to but be, it's so honest. counter to the grip Meituan has in China. Right. Be, and and that was well from what I've heard uh without, you know, first-hand experience working at Meituan or whatever. It's just they were willing to do the dirty boots on the ground work of landing every single mom and pop that other companies just either couldn't afford or weren't willing to do. And typical shop owners, uh, they aren't that interested to switch. Once they're with somebody, they're kind of good. They're like, no, we don't need another one or I don't want to bother trying to figure it out or onboard or what have you. For whatever reason, um, it just seems like Meituan is going to, they're one of the most stabilized top platforms in their sector just due to the fact that um, it's it's going to be really, really hard to unseat them for, for multiple very difficult barriers that are in place. It, it could be that the subsidy wars, there, there's no one with hmm. the billions of dollars to do that kind of subsidy war. Uh, all of these companies have done the nitty gritty of block by block yeah. customer acquisition. I think it's also very easy now, because the payments infrastructure is already in place, it's very easy. Like these, what's what's different about um, about China versus here is the banks are already digital, right? They also still do a lot of like you can do cash on delivery still for 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 Lazada and whatnot, right? Um, but that seems to be that's an option, but it seems to be happening less and less. Um, but because the the payments infrastructure is already in place. I think for a restaurant owner, it doesn't matter because it's not that like my money, I mean, Shopee and everybody wants you to put money into their platform. Like there's true money, there's grab wallet. Everyone's trying to convince you to park cash in their platform, but I haven't seen it. And like you'll get points, but it's not, doesn't seem to be sticky enough where people will actually put a lot of money. I don't know the, 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 the dynamics of it, but it's simple enough because because the banking payment is so easy, whoever I, whichever platform I find and discover a restaurant in, isn't the platform that's handling the payment necessarily. They're just going to be effectively like, like it's like Amazon doesn't own the MasterCard process, right? You go to Amazon, but you use PayPal. And so it doesn't have the same stickiness in, in, in China. Meituan has a more sticky relationship with you. Um, because of the WeChat platform where the payments are kind of steered through that as opposed to an independent third party, such as a PayPal in the US. And I think maybe that's, that's what's happening where there's less, there's less of a reason for me to only use one place. It's like, Oh, I found these guys are offering a discount on my favorite restaurant. Great. I'll use them today because the payment's not going through them, right? They're just, they're just the, they're a broker, but my experience of them is still so maybe from the merchant's perspective, they have a preference for who you maybe they get like a, a different take rate on different platforms. But from the consumer's perspective, it's just like, where can I find the restaurant? The payment will happen wherever if I get a, maybe a discount on, on somebody. But there's no reason for me to be loyal to one over the other. OK, yeah, I mean, and, and that leads me to have a, a, a bunch more questions. Uh, for instance, something that I use that I really like is, is something from Shopify called Shop, which is tied into my e-commerce platforms and does all my shipment tracking for me all in one place. Even if I order off AliExpress, um, everything can kind of go in there. I can actually pay 
with shop um, that uh, I get a little bit of rewards with or whether it's off wish or what have you. Um, I get it. That's a very interesting uh, app on its own, which is really almost just as we have so many shipments coming from so many different platforms. Now I've got just this one try. I can actually open it and see all shipments and delivery, where they are, where they're going. They've got a little map that shows where it's a customs or other things like that. Um, which I really, really like as well. Um, even things getting into like finances or stuff like Credit Karma, which is what I use kind of track. It's a bit of an anti-fraud. I get notified when things, I can track my credit score, all these kinds of things as well. And there's a lot of things that we need to talk about. And and, and I think this is going to require a second episode. And um, I'm going to leave it to my compatriot, Liam, to try to set something up so that we can dive into things like AI, which we really didn't get into, talk about more about some of the technology trends that are happening in Southeast Asia, even around social, uh, and just maybe some of the more some of the trends of Chinese investment into Southeast Asia and where that's coming from. There's just a lot more to talk about, but you know, we're yeah, kind of we didn't hitting... even touch on TikTok. We didn't know we about e-commerce. We didn't even exactly. talk about TikTok, which is like, ah, right. And that, uh, well, and yeah, Facebook I mean, is still huge out here. Yeah. We have e-commerce to uh, dive Facebook. into this. Yeah. So, okay. you know, we're just, we're just teasing all the audience now for like coming and joining <laughs> us for, for, for part two, but we're going to put a pin in this one as far um, as, as part one is kind of concerned because, um, we don't want to bump too much past an hour. We know that you've probably sure. stayed with us for quite some time. And that is um, a lengthy first episode as it is. So, you know, for now, uh, Shai, thank you very much. Uh, why don't you tell people maybe where they can find some of your content, some of your writing, get in touch. Maybe they want to have you uh, join their show as well, like you have ours. How can people find you? Sure. Uh, as I said, I'm on smoke signals, stone carvings, and and um, telepathy. Uh, my email is shy s h a i dot oster o s t e r at gmail dot com. Uh, shy s h a i dot oster at gmail dot com. Uh, I'm also on Twitter. Uh, it's um, this is dating myself. I'm at Beijing Scribe um, because. You know, Why I didn't not? know that I would ever live anyplace else. How could mm-hmm. that be? Um, so yeah, at Beijing Scribe on Twitter. Um, the information content and the Wall Street Journal stuff that's mostly behind paywalls. Uh, mm-hmm. But you can Google me and you'll find plenty of stuff, I'm sure. Uh, going back to, um, you know, my, my days as a stringer back in the late 90s. And uh, and if you're looking for someone, um, I'm happy to do, you know, I'm, I'm open for business. So if people need uh, some help in strategic comms or, or other advisory, uh, around the idea around uh, China and Southeast Asia, I'm, I'm um, more than happy to discuss. Okay, brilliant. Yeah, thank you very, very much. And I think anybody who's listening to the show is going to be pretty eager to get in touch with you and consume more. So, uh, but we have already consumed an hour of everybody's time, including your shy. Thank you very, very much for coming on the show. We really appreciate you joining us today. It was my pleasure. Thanks a lot. Okay, as usual, for those of you listening to us audio only on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, you name it, don't forget that you can go and watch us discuss all this kind of stuff and maybe see some of those screenshots as Shai was holding his phone up to the camera over on the WPIC YouTube channel. But for me and everybody at the negotiation and for Shai, thank you very much for joining us today and we'll see you next time. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking at the Asia-Pacific region for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. 
My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands, just like yours, enter China, Japan, and Southeast Asia. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co, and be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.